Ever wonder what history's most famous and infamous people would say if you asked them for their side of the story? Well, this is it. You're listening to Hindsight, a new podcast by Al Jazeera. I'm Charles Dance. This is a dramatized series based on historical events that resurrect some of the world's most memorable figures. You've heard of them, but now it's time to hear from them. You know you've made it when you get a Google Doodle. It's a shame Zaha Hadid wasn't around to see it. The Google Doodle, which is the daily illustration that appears on Google.com, depicts the world-renowned Iraqi British architect as she was often seen wearing her signature angular black dress. Behind her is an illustration of the Haydar Aliyev Center that she designed for Azerbaijan in 2007. Its central feature, a dramatically swooped roof that has no sharp edges, only curves, celebrating her forward-thinking contributions to the architecture world and her unique, rebellious aesthetic. A flourish of colorful swirls surrounding the Google logo nods to Hadid's explosive energy and insatiable pursuit of the cutting edge. It's a trait many people would admire in her, and many would also hold against her. So who was this controversial woman? In this episode of Hindsight, we hear from one of the most innovative architects in modern times. This is the story of Zaha Hadid, based on documented events and her own words. None more famous than... There are 360 degrees. Why stick to just one? In Arabic, Zaha means vibrant and Hadid means iron. It's no wonder I became an architect. <laughs> I was born on October 31st, 1950, in Baghdad, Iraq. It was a golden era. Iraq was beautiful, ready and willing to be part of the modern century. The oil reserves were serving the people and pouring money into huge projects to build the country. It was a great time to be an architect. Idealistic and Western-educated teenage monarch King Faisal II brought in some of the biggest names of the time. Walter Gropius, Gio Ponti, Frank Lloyd Wright. Their ideas transformed Baghdad's cityscape into a modern metropolis. I grew up in a good-sized house with my father, my mother, and my two older brothers. I was a curious child. I wanted to know everything. You could always hear me around the house asking my poor father questions. Dad, why this? Why that? Because my brothers were quite a bit older than me, I was like an only child, and my father was at my mercy. He was a very patient man. We were well off, but our home was not opulent. My father, Muhammad Hadid, was an economist and cabinet minister. My mother, Wajiha Sabunji, was an artist, and she was the one who inspired me to pursue architecture, though she probably didn't mean to. She took me to see a Frank Lloyd Wright exhibit at the Opera House in Baghdad when I was six years old. I was dazzled. 
I remember saying, Mom, look at all the shapes and the colors. Whenever we traveled, I'd go for walks with my father around the town to see all the famous buildings. I was transfixed by the interplay of light and shadows spilling off the giant structures, mesmerized by the elegance of the skyline. The illusion of lightness was breathtaking. My most vivid memory of our adventures was the ancient city of Sumer in the south of Iraq. To get there, we travel through marshlands in small boats. These boats were simple and elegant little bamboo rafts, meticulously made. I was surprised they could keep us all afloat. I used to look over the edge of the boat at the gentle ripples in the water and the shifting sand around the rough edges of the fallen ruins. It was like watching living art. I was just 11 when I announced to my family that I wanted to become an architect. <laughs> I remember one of my brothers saying I could be an astronaut if I wanted. Uh, bless him. Her brothers believed their little sister could do anything. But to Hadid's parents, her aspirations to become an architect seemed just as far-fetched as her becoming the first Iraqi female in space. Not because they didn't think she was smart or determined enough, but because they knew it was not an industry that favored women. But she was just an idealistic 11-year-old, and what's the harm in dreaming? So Hadid's parents gave her permission to redecorate her bedroom and the guest room to see what she could do and keep her happy. They were pragmatic, my parents. They believed in dreams as long as they were achievable ones. I tend to think any dream is achievable. Sometimes that gets me into trouble. When I was in high school, I sat my parents down. Please, you have to let me follow my dream. It's my dream and I want to be an architect. Well, it turned into a heated debate, I guess. They expected my childhood dream to have disappeared by then. You're not listening to what I'm saying. You are not listening to me. Father was so adamant that I should pursue a more versatile degree than architecture. He was a prudent parent. My wild aspirations must have tested that. There was also the fact that my older brother Hytham was going through a bit of a rough time. He had just gotten a divorce, which was fairly unusual at the time. So... I devised a plan. I would go to live with my brother in Beirut and help him with his two young children, and while I was at it, I would go to university and chase my dream of becoming an architect. The final decision came to Hadid's parents, who decided she would attend the American University of Beirut, the same school her father went to, but she would not be studying architecture. Instead, she was told to get a degree in mathematics. So I spent my days studying math like my parents wanted, but at night I would obsessively sketch whatever design, whatever imaginary building came to mind. Yeah, this is good. My niece Rana and nephew Hussein would see me drawing and run and beg their dad for some pencils and paper so they could draw like their auntie Zaha. You can make... All these different shapes. You see? At one point, Rana peered over at my sketch, and uh, with this puzzled little look on her face, she said to me, Auntie, I don't understand. What is this supposed to be? <laughs> I'm not sure she liked it, but 
I took her curiosity as a compliment. Or maybe that was her first hint that her design style wasn't for everyone. To her deed, architecture was more than just designing shelters or a practical building. It was synonymous with creating art. She believed buildings should move their viewer, emotionally and intellectually. The trouble was, Hadid's sketches often blurred the lines between abstract art and architecture, and for a long time her peers reacted like her niece and didn't understand what she was doing. I never had kids of my own. Rana and Hussein were as close as I got, but that was by choice. I decided in my early 20s that I could either pursue a career in architecture or raise a family, but not both. If I was going to carve out a role in a male-dominated industry as an Arab woman, I knew it was going to be all-consuming. In 1972, Hadid was a 22-year-old university graduate with a degree in mathematics. Her father got her a job in finance when she returned to Iraq from Beirut, but it wasn't the best fit. It was one thing going through the motions for a degree, quite another to be sitting at a desk all day moving numbers around. I needed to branch out. Not only away from math, but away from Iraq too, and I knew just how to convince my father. I said I wanted to go to the London School of Economics, just as he had in the 20s. So that year, it was 1972, I flew to London and began classes at the Architectural Association School. <laughs> London was a revelation for me. I studied under my mentor, Rem Kohlhaas. Oh, unlike others, he didn't tell me to restrain myself. He encouraged me to follow my instincts. How refreshing! During that final year of architecture school, I presented a design for a new London hotel that won a special diploma prize. My instructors had said they had never seen something so imaginative. That project was my first foray into the world of deconstructivism, my first true expression of the relationship between mathematics, architecture, and abstract design. Deconstructive architecture wasn't a new idea, but its possibilities captured my imagination. It's all about deconstructing the elements of the building and the topography surrounding it and reconstructing them in a free, fluid way. All I wanted to do from then on was push those boundaries further than ever before and never look back. Not that she had anywhere to look back to. In 1980, her beloved Iraq was at war with Iran, which meant that her parents were stuck and Hadid was on her own in London. I couldn't believe my eyes. There was Baghdad, our once gorgeous, thriving city, turning into that ancient Sumerian city overnight. Just half buildings and rubble everywhere you look. I turned 30 years old that year. I knew I couldn't go back to my war-ravaged country to start my career. So I got my British citizenship and opened up my very own firm, Zaha Hadid Architects. It was bittersweet. I had always planned to launch my architecture career in Baghdad, but London was equally thrilling. 
I dreamed of the day where I'd see my drawings become three-dimensional reality. Other architects, usually men, would tell me that women can't think three-dimensionally. No, I had never heard anything so preposterous in my life. I plan to use every angle in existence to prove them wrong. But Hadid was as naive as she was talented. And as a female immigrant in the London architecture scene, she had a lot to prove. Hello. Oh, yes. How, how, how are you? Yes. Oh, thank you. I'm fine. Thank you very much. The entire first decade of Hadid's firm, she didn't win a single commission, didn't get a single build. Oh, no, of course. Well, I understand it's a decision you have to make, so yeah. So her business was simply submitting sketches to design competitions. Her paid gig was in academia, teaching architecture in Cambridge, Harvard, the University of Chicago, and Columbia, as well as Hamburg. But her drawings never stopped. Her abstract ideas of deconstructivism grew and with greater intensity during these years. She was obstinate about her designs, and although she made it a point to hire a diverse set of young talent and architecture upstarts in her London studio, she often treated them more like children. What is this? How do you expect us to win any contracts with designs like this? Look, I have high standards and accept nothing short of perfection. What else are we here to do if not to push ourselves? Are you crying? Seriously? Which is why I got a reputation for being difficult to work with. But that is the only reason I was able to keep the business going in those days, and I was really starting to make a name for myself. But the name she was making for herself was that of the paper architect, someone whose designs were thrilling to look at in a gallery or in a magazine, but were deemed unfeasible or impossible to actually build. After five years in architecture as a celebrated student and ten years at her own firm, she gained a reputation as an architect in theory only. Everyone kept telling me that my sketches were too abstract, too conceptual. It was maddening. The establishment had no imagination. I was punished for being innovative. Design after design after design, it was always the same story. People kept insisting that they couldn't make the building materials work the way I was envisioning. But I knew it was all excuses. The only reason they were so quick to dismiss my ideas as irrational or unfeasible was because I'm a woman. I just needed my chance to prove them wrong. Hadid was still waiting to prove her critics wrong by the end of the 1980s. By then she was turning 40 and still actively and obsessively sketching and designing, but was forced to teach to support herself. A glimmer of hope flickered in 1990 when Hadid was commissioned to design a fire station in Weil am Rhein, Germany. Finally, I could exercise my vision. The building had all the perfect components of abstract architecture. Lots of long, narrow, angled hallways. As I've always said, there are 360 degrees. Why stick to just one? So many people still doubted my designs. But here was proof. And after it was complete, my firm took off. But also during that time, 
technology finally caught up to Hadid's imagination, and she could now prove the feasibility of her seemingly outlandish designs through computer programs. Though many naysayers still criticised what they called her bombastic style. We used to pull all-nighters. I once went four days without sleep. Coffee, cigarettes, and my favourite black drawing paper kept me going. There was this one time I took on a project for an architecture magazine. They had published a lot of my work before, and this was my chance to actually get something built for them. They asked me to design their exhibit for a big builders' convention in Birmingham, in England. I didn't want to design any old trade show booth. What would be the point in that? I came up with the idea of building an actual pavilion, like a miniature building inside the conference centre. I wanted it to be a destination, an attraction, not just a booth. It was enough of a blank canvas that it didn't distract from the exhibit, but it was also interesting enough, structurally, to be a standalone feature. The magazine asked me to pitch the exhibit to a group of their advertisers. They were made up of mostly all men, as usual. Thank you, thank you so much for having me this evening. You should have seen me. I look forward to sharing a few of my uh, ideas with you all. I was possessed. You would think I was presenting my magnum opus of work, but I can't help it. That's who I am. I truly believe with all my soul. So there I was, giving this passionate speech about my vision for the exhibit and how it represents contemporary design. And then, when I finished, in conclusion, this exhibit, this booth, represents contemporary design. No reaction. Thank you. Nothing. I was used to always getting a love-it-or-hate-it reaction, some reaction, but with these guys, there's just... nothing. And then this one man, this man stands up and he starts clapping. Loudly. Slowly. And he starts shouting. Now that was bloody brief! Finally, a kindred spirit. And with that, the rest of the group snapped out of it and started clapping along with him. Now that guy was a visionary. I later heard he was the CEO of a porta potty company. He never did ask me to design a porta potty. It's too bad. Fifteen years into her career, Hadid in her mid-forties was finally getting proper recognition as an architect. No longer a paper architect. She had broken through. But momentum can be short-lived. Her greatest challenge would be to design a new build in the UK, something that eluded her since moving to London. One day I heard about an international competition to design the Cardiff Bay Opera House in Wales. It was a huge deal. My gosh, I felt so nostalgic. I thought about the opera house that Frank Lloyd Wright had designed for Baghdad. My mother showed me the drawings when I was just a kid. It was one of my earliest inspirations. Here was my opportunity to build something just as beautiful for my adopted country. I knew I had to put everything I had into it. I thought endlessly about how we experience performance. I wanted the auditoriums to flow through and within one another rather than function as segregated rooms. I wanted people to walk around and be enveloped by the music. And how could I not incorporate the single best feature in the area, the bay? 
My design had glass placed strategically so that the waves would reflect light back into the opera house. The judges were clearly excited about my design. Some of them even nicknamed it the Crystal Necklace. I won the competition. Then, just like that, Hadid lost. The UK National Lottery, the main funding source for the project, refused to pay for the build. It was the usual criticisms Hadid thought she had moved past. Too expensive, unfeasible, bombastic, impossible. They held a second competition, and so I submitted again. I believed in my vision for the design too much to give in. I wasn't going to let these backwards fools take this away from me. And guess what? My design won again. And again, the National Lottery refused to fund the project. Following the competition, the National Lottery explained that their decision not to pursue the build came from a hesitation around the size of the budget and engineering concerns around the feasibility of the structure itself. Keeping to a budget would be a problem for Hadid in the future, but that may not have been the only thing going on here. Prince Charles, heir apparent to the British throne, had been running a series of national campaigns supporting a British neo-traditional style of design, a style that is in direct opposition to Hadid's unabashed modernism. Hadid blew a gasket. As the Brits say, that is a load of bollocks. You should never have subjected true artists... It was a slap in the face. I considered the UK my home. But now I felt betrayed. It was enough to make her deeply question whether a career in architecture was a good idea anymore. So much for never looking back. Then again, she had suspected that one day the all-consuming way in which she approached her work could break her. Was this it? Here I am, wandering the streets of London, a city I've walked a thousand times before, but I never felt more foreign. Why does this place insist on staying in the past? Their stubbornness is exhausting. They are the guardians of tradition. They're afraid of change, of progress. Perhaps I'm so harshly judged because I am the advocate for the new, for the future. Or is it because I'm a woman? What do my black dresses and purple lipstick have anything to do with my abilities? Nothing. But I am a woman, and therefore my appearance is an object of criticism as if it's my work. I don't see any of the guys winning any beauty pageants. Somehow, the critics don't care to make comments about his looks or what he's wearing. Working with clients was not Hadid's speciality. Many of her colleagues described Hadid as intensely skilled and collaborative during the design process, but in the end, she made decisions like an oligarch. She was stuck in a rut and out of the game. Hadid retreated back into her paper architect shell. I was spinning my wheels for nearly three years when my guardian angel of architects came to my rescue. My old friend and future business partner, Patrick Schumacher. I credit Patrick for my comeback, 100%. 
People always suspected that he and I were a couple, but only in business. Not that it was any of their business. We met at a symposium in London back in the 80s where I was exhibiting some of my work. Patrick really came through for me when I wasn't sure I could continue fighting the same uphill battles. Old versus new, me versus them, woman versus man, that whole nuisance. He was just as excited about my new art in 1998 as he was when we first met a decade earlier. For him, nothing was over. I couldn't stop. I had only just begun. Technically, she has only one permanent building to her name, the fire station in Germany. The Cardiff project, had it been realized, would have been her second. But Patrick Schumacher lit a fire for her deed. His belief in her helped bring back her confidence and drive, and their partnership snatched Zaha Hadid architects from the recession caused by the Cardiff curse to start their golden age with the new millennium, and it led to a career-defining and life-changing experience in Rome. The Italian Ministry of Culture commissioned a design competition, asking architects to reimagine parts of an old military structure, the Catizona Montello, into a brand new museum for contemporary art and architecture. Hadid entered and won. And unlike in the UK, the Italians didn't take away her win. Rome was a breath of fresh air. Finally, people who appreciate a little flamboyance. I just loved sashaying down the streets with my red lipstick on, being as loud as I wanted. For the first time in a very long time, I felt like I belonged. They celebrated me as their own. On the outside, the museum buildings were these drab, grey, concrete cubes. But on the inside, they were a gift, a blank canvas. To really transform the whole nature of this building, I wanted to expand on the definition of a museum. The beautiful thing about this particular structure was that it was so expansive. There's a field connecting two buildings and numerous open spaces that begged for connection. I thought to myself, this is no longer a museum at its heart. This is a cultural center. I wanted visitors to feel the open space, to walk on glazed floors and to glide their fingers along softly curved concrete walls, all bathed in natural light. A canopy of suspended staircases would give the illusion of a floating stairwell. The ceilings would be lined with glass panels, making people feel like they're being gently carried through the chaos. It all reminds me of the flow of the water under our bamboo raft near the ancient city of Sumer. People often misunderstand the core of deconstructivism. The joy is not just in the deconstructing. The real art comes in the reconstruction, in taking all these disparate parts and harmonizing them into something new. Something surprisingly serene. Hadid had finally landed her dream client, but that didn't temper her intense demeanor or approach. The project, known as Maxi, took more than 10 years to complete. Throughout that time, Hadid proposed sweeping changes to her original design, 
many of which were approved by the ministry, making the project take much longer than originally planned. Most architects wouldn't dare risk their reputation to extend the life of a project like this, but Hadid was a perfectionist. Before the building was complete, Hadid's work attracted rebukes from critics, who were skeptical about whether she would be able to come up with something that would enhance rather than distract from the artwork it's meant to showcase. My critics were dying for me to fail. It felt good to disappoint them. When the museum was revealed in 2010, it was a hit. Critics called it the most significant new building in the Eternal City in decades. During the decade-plus that Hadid was building Maxi in Rome, the spark had been lit. Despite her reputation as a rebel and a risk, she was getting big commissions all around the world. Zaha Hadid Architects was in high demand. The Rosenthal Center for Contemporary Art in Ohio is a personal favorite. Now that was deconstructivism at its best. It was the first American museum to ever be designed by a woman. Think about that. An Iraqi-born British citizen is the first female to break that ground in the United States? And this was 1997. The building was completed in 2000, and from there, it was just one big commission after another. It took me four decades from when I proclaimed I would be an architect at age 11 to finally get the recognition I deserved. But never in my wildest dreams would I have expected what came in 2004. I won the prestigious Pritzker Architecture Prize. The most famous architects, Frank Gehry, Le Corbusier, even my former teacher, Rem Koolhaas, had received the award. The ceremony took place in St. Petersburg, Russia. Oh, talk about a city with great art and even greater architecture. Mr. Pritzker himself introduced me before putting the medal over my head. He stood in front of a room full of people, and I will never forget this. He said, I have no problem waxing eloquent about this year's recipient, for I have no doubt that she is one of the great architects of our time. It was the first time that a woman had ever won the prize. Having finally made her mark on the global stage a full 15 years after her heartbreaking Cardiff Opera House ordeal, Hadid was finally commissioned for high-profile projects in the UK. Perhaps her most notable was the London Olympics Aquatic Centre, which Hadid had been asked to build in time for the 2012 Summer Olympics. Yes, 2012 was a very good year. But in all my life, I never expected to meet the Queen of England. The highest status marker of British success was being bestowed upon me, of all people. <laughs> I was given the title of Dame Commander of the Order of the British Empire for my work throughout the UK. Twenty years ago, British high society made sure I couldn't and wouldn't succeed. And now... <laughs> they're calling me Dame Zaha Hadid. The ceremony was held at Buckingham Palace on the day of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. It was a party. 
Getting to see the inside of the palace was very exciting, but it was also so nerve-wracking for me. I was terrified people would ask me for my opinion of it. But Hadid's decade-long winning streak came to an abrupt end in 2014 when she would return to the Middle East. She was selected to design one of Qatar's football stadiums for the 2022 FIFA World Cup. The dream project turned into a publicity nightmare. Reports of hazardous working conditions leading to the deaths of migrant workers caused a stir in the international community, and many accusing the project's developers of human rights violations. I have no comment at this time. Thank you. As an architect, I have nothing to do with the workers. It's not my business to manage the project site. No other architect could ever be expected to be accountable for that. People are so hungry to turn a success story into a scandal. To see a star crash and burn. Hadid's summer had gone from bad to worse. Architect turned on her. They called Hadid's views immoral, said her response was tone-deaf to the situation in Qatar, and as a result gave the industry a bad reputation. Architects accused Hadid of being a starkitect, an architect who's more concerned with the limelight and who lacks consideration for the societal, political and economic impact of their designs. Architects can be such hypocrites. They don't understand the difference between drive and ambition. A fellow architect said he didn't deny that Hadid endured a long battle in her career, though sometimes it's easy to overplay certain cards. Hadid's most successful years were also shadowed by many critics and peers calling her out for catering exclusively to the ultra-wealthy and morally dubious. Having grown tired of the local scene, Hadid relocated from London to Miami, Florida in 2016, where she dedicated herself to her latest project, a set of tall luxury condo towers. But shortly after the move, at just 65 years old, she died suddenly of a heart attack on March the 31st, 2016. She died as one of the most influential and successful architects of her generation, far exceeding even her own lofty childhood dreams. And her company, Zaha Hadid Architects, lives on to this day. It's a cliché to say, but the best part of my job was that I got to see the world, and even to reimagine parts of it. That was always how I wanted to leave my mark. Some people have children, others have pets. I have buildings. Hindsight is an historical drama podcast. All dramatized scenes and dialogue are inspired by actual events, old interviews, and in some cases, new conversations with people close to the subject. Hindsight is an Al Jazeera original podcast produced by Kelly and Kelly. Their team is 
series director Chris Kelly, series producers Lauren Berkovich and Michael Tanko-Grand, executive producers Chris Kelly and Pat Kelly. This episode is written by Lima Alize. Zaha Hadid is played by Serene Sabah. This episode is narrated by me, Charles Dance. Editing by Dave Shumka and Paul Tedeschini. Sound design by Paul Tedeschini. Associate producer, Lima Alize. Translated by Abdullah Al-Masalam. Joe DeFrias is Al Jazeera's executive producer for this series. Fact-checking by Joy Lee. Script editing by Danello Havaleshka. Al Jazeera's head of audio is Graylin Brashear. <laughs>